0: Welcome to Did You Know? The podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today we're in conversation with Tim Blacksmith, artist, producer, writer, manager and now one of the leading lights in the world of music publishing. As with all our guests, we like to ask them why they chose the music industry. Here's what Tim had to say when we asked him.
1: Well, the music business was something that I stumbled into. From an early age, Love music, love instruments, discovered drums from an early age at school, wouldn't stop playing them, convinced my father to buy me a drum set at uh, the age of 12, set it up in my bedroom, drove them completely bonkers, and the neighbours completely bonkers. And then my dad said, yeah, you're going to go and join a band because my brother also played an instrument. My brother Carl played tenor saxophone. And so we ended up joining a band down in Greenwich, and it was a lovers' rock band at that time. And then one day the leader of the band said, yeah, this is great, sounds amazing. We're going to record. And I was like, I'm 14 now. I'm like, what's record mean? What's that going to be? Ended up at a studio, which is now legendary as far as reggae music is concerned, called Gooseberry Studios. And there was an engineer down there by the name of Mark Lussardi. In the corner was a little drum set, mic'd up. He goes, right, you sit over there, put the headphones on and you play. When I count you in, you guys start. I was like, okay, that experience was amazing because for a 14 year old, hearing themselves come back on these things, on these headphones was like life changing for me. Anyway, I left that session, went home and about three weeks later, sat there having Sunday dinner, as you did in a West Indian community, (laughs) got the radio on. It's the Tony Williams show that's on Radio London. The record comes on the radio. And I'm thinking, whoa, this is what we want to do. Me and my brother, we look at one another over a plate of stew, chicken, rice and peas. (laughs) And we were like, yeah, this is what we want to be doing. And so that's where the journey began.
0: A slight departure from some of the other stories we've heard which is where you have a parent who's very very supportive of their son daughter getting into the music business where a lot of our guests previously have it's the real focus has been about education getting a trade learning and being able to support themselves in the wider world without following what some saw as almost a fool's errand I mean you know you're incredibly fortunate
1: in that respect it wasn't really support our parents were sort of like lulled into it because of our persistence and our passion. You know, I remember after the record came out, we did our first show down in Bristol at a club called the Turntable Club. And I remember we had to lug this enormous organ up a flight of stairs you know what I mean? Those are the kind of things where, you know, you really realise you're dedicated. My father was an entrepreneur, still is. And, and, and um, of course, there were many, many conversations about what we were going to do and what's considered a profession from what's not considered a profession. But all I will say is, is that our passion and determination was at such a level that it was undeniable in the end. I also had a beloved uncle who ran one of my father's businesses. When I would go and work with him on the weekend, because my father had a chain of electronic stores, on a Friday, he would always get the biggest pile of the latest imports from the record shops, because my uncle was big into his music. My job was not only to keep the shop clean, but was to also put all of these records on his eight-track recorder. He recently passed away. And I remember going around the house to pay my condolences the last time I was in uh, England. And there was his record collection there. And I remember I pulled out uh, Black Moses. And I remember Black by, by Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes. Yeah. Gate-folded sleeve. Yeah with the chainmail of this. Absolutely. One thing that had not left this pressing was the smell, that smell of vinyl, you know? So just being around people like my uncle, working in my father's business at that time, I mean, everybody came through that business. All of the sound systems that were big in England at that time, Cox and... Stereograph, Young Lion, you know, all of these guys came through the shop. So there was a real sense of community growing up. There was a sense of independence because at that time there were no major record companies interested in lovers rock at that time. There was very few major companies interested in black music full stop at that time. Learning how to press record yourself and doing it yourself was another part of my journey. And I learnt that through watching a lot of these reggae icons do it themselves.
0: We should talk about some of the artists you work with because you have a real history throughout Lovers Rock scene that fueled what happened in the next chapter of your career. But for those that don't know about that part of it, chronicle some of the artists that you played with, recorded with, Tim. Some of them are incredible.
1: Yeah. um, I ended up working with people like Carol Thompson, my sister, I owe her a debt of gratitude. She took me on tour when I was either 15 or 16. I can't remember. Uh, Alan Weeks, or well, Mr. Lovers Rock, as we called him. Uh, Karen Wheeler, uh, in particular. I went to school with Karen. Claudio Fontaine, God bless her, my sister. Cleveland Watkiss, wow. My memories of Cleveland are such great ones. Sugar Miner, Black Roots, Godwin Logie, who did everyone. My brother, Godwin was like that rod across your back. Um, Still Pulse in particular. You can imagine uh, Still Pulse at that time were one of the premier reggae bands, not just in England, but globally, they were really significant. And you know something? It was a real community. I was very, very fortunate. I had mentors in my life. You know, my father was a great mentor, even though I didn't recognize it when I was yeah. a teenager. <laughs> state. All of these guys treated me with so much reverence and respect, I learned so much from them. We were really, really fortunate, when I think back, um, to have had those kind of people I remember we were working on one album with Steel Pulse and it was at a a studio out in Farnham and Godwin said, you guys haven't got the right sounds. And we were like, what do you mean we haven't got the right sounds? Of course we've got the right sounds. No, you haven't. And Godwin used used to have this phrase, listen, you man, I've been doing this for a while now, right? So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to hire a thing called an emulator and I'm going to hire all the sounds, and you guys are going to go through all of these sounds, and come tomorrow, you're going to come, and you're going to play me all of the sounds that you've got. (laughs) Me and my brother, we sat up all night, and we went through hundreds of sounds. At those times, all the sounds were on these little floppy disks, and we went through all of these sounds. Next day, came along, we went through the sounds we had selected. And he was like, hmm, yes, you, man. <laughs> hmm. okay, yeah, I can go with that. That one, not so much, but yeah, I can go with that. That left a long-lasting impression on me on how important it is to learn about sound design and to be open to technology, as we were then, but we couldn't afford an emulator. I mean, an emulator back then, you're talking 20, 25 grand, <laughs> was a real eye opener. Uh, again, that just shows you being around people who are forward thinking and open minded can really influence your trajectory and how you move forward.
0: My first coming across Blacksmith was on a Sunday night at Radio London, and you may remember Dave Pearce had a show on a Sunday night where I used to have people guesting from the music industry, and on this particular Sunday night, it was my turn. They played a couple of things, and they played. they went, we're going to drop this new tune by a new group called Blacksmith. I was like, okay. And I remember listening to it thinking, this is unbelievable, because the sounds were uh, were just completely different. It was a completely different vibe. I remember kind of giving it an unbelievably glowing review before I'd even met you guys who knew who you were. But I don't, don't lie,
1: Adrian. Don't lie, Adrian. You slaughtered us. I remember no, I got know, it on you... tape somewhere. <laughs> you know it's
0: not true. <laughs> but I just remember at that time thinking, this is something very, very special. How did you get to that point from playing in sessions and being those guys to having your first record
1: out? Well, before Blacksmith we created a group called The Beat Lads. And it all came about from going to hear Tim Westwood. Like a lot of kids at that time, I was totally enamored by what was going on in America at that time. On top of my reggae, I still was, you know, hearing a lot of reggae, but hip hop was just starting to come through to the forefront at that time. And I loved a particular record and the guy who produced it and co-wrote it we're now dear friends and have been for a long time but anyway I'm at the fridge in Brixton and all the great records you know Tim Westwood's playing all these great records you know we're all in there we've got our Bows on our baggy jeans <laughs> uh, you know our troop jackets Pelé Pelé you know what I mean? Car can I, everything, cross colours, everything can run, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, um, this record comes on and I'm like, oh my God, that whole place goes bonkers. I'm like, what is this? And so anyway, at the end of the night, I go up to Westwood and I say to Tim, I said, Tim, what was that record you played? He goes, which one, Blacksmith? Which one? Which one? And I went, the one that went, Oh, 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 uh uh-uh, oh, 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 oh. Oh, 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 It goes, oh, that's Milk D. That's MC Milk D. That's top billing. And I was like, right, okay. And I remember going down to Red's Records the next day, buying the record, taking it home and studying it, and then creating a beat around that and creating a song called It's You by The Beat Lads. Me and my brother, we were contemplating putting this record out ourselves. There was a guy called Mikey Roots. Mikey Roots worked at Island Records at the time. Yes, of course he did, yeah. Course, Mikey yeah. Roots said, Yeah. Oi, Tim, this is really good. You should go and play this for Julian Palmer. And I went, who? He said, Julian Palmer. Does Misha Paris and he's doing quite a bit with quite a few things at Fall from Broadway. So I said, "Eh, whatever, you want to go and play? So I remember he calling me back. He said, Tim, Julian wants to meet you. So, all right then. So I went now, long story short, Julian liked the record. And... Jewel said, I want to sign it. So we were like, sign it. Oh, yeah, okay. Whatever. I mean, because we were going to put it out ourselves. Um, At that time, I was great friends with Jazzy B from Salt Salt because Jazzy had the company store over in um, Camden. And Jazzy bought a lot of records from me that I would press myself because he had a lot of Japanese people who would come and buy these records. So I went out to see him and he was just starting soul to soul the act at that time. And he asked me my thoughts on labels. And I thought, well, it's funny you should say that. Just got enough on myself. So we were just starting out. Our record was called It's You. His record at that time, and he played it for me, was called uh, Be Fair. I thought it was great. You know, again... Real sense, he had more of a community thing going on because of the funky dreads, the Africa Center. So, anyway, long story short, as far as you know, it's you was concerned, another guy called Tim Rudlin showed up, who was head of A and over at EMI Records at that time, and you know, uh, he said, "Heard this record, want to talk to you about doing a deal," and I was like, "Okay, cool." went to see him, you know, and they started offering us money. It was the first time I realised, boy, you can make real money out of this business. Again, you know, another side of the business, which is the reality, which was I never got into it to make money. I was just enjoying it and uh, kept us out of trouble. We signed it to Island Records. Didn't really do much, um... We didn't survive on the label very long. But um, I met a a DJ who had heard the record and loved it and thought we were good and said, have you got anything else? And we said, yeah, we've got something else. I'm going to send it to you. He goes, no, come by the office and play it for me. And his name was Dave Durrell. We were just starting to get very, very influenced again by what was going on in New York and New Jersey at that time, which was the house scene, and in particular, the Soulful Garage scene, you know, um, and what was coming out from uh, Chicago. And so we made this record called Get Back to Love and uh, played it for Dave. Dave absolutely loved it and started playing it at his club. He said, Oi, this is my theme song. This is my theme. (laughs) And so he took it to a real dear friend of us of us both, Pete Tom, who was a and at that time at uh, London FFRR. Dave called me up and said, Tim, Pete Tom wants to meet you guys. He wants to give you guys a deal. I said, oh, go away, Dave. Stop winding us up. We've had enough of all of these deals. Stop winding us up. Dave goes, would I kid you? I'm not kidding you. We went up and we sat there. And we play e if we had more music, we played in more music. And it was at that time, you know, FFRR was the label for house music at that time. You know, and not only just house music, but, you know, black music in general, FFRR were having massive hits. Everyone from, you know, salt and Pepper to Frankie Knuckles, Satoshi Tomi, Dave Morales. Pete was on a roll. Very, very hot. That's how Blacksmith came about because we didn't want to continue the name of the Beat Lads. We wanted to give it a whole new refresh. I couldn't believe how good the deal was. We priced it all out and we ended up buying a studio. And that studio lasted us for another 20, 25 years. And I probably still would have been there now had I not made the venture to where I am now. So that's how Blacksmith came about. It comprised of me, my brother, and a really dear friend, uh, Peter Trotman. And we all went to school together. Was that particular moment with Pete, the
0: moment you felt that, you know what, I had a full start with Ireland, but I can really have a career in the business. This is the moment where I can actually move forward and really do something.
1: Um, No, I always felt that there was a career Or there was a love. And I always felt that uh, we were really fortunate to be around talented people. That was the motivation, was meeting talented people. People would come through your door and you think, yeah, all right, let's hear what you got. And then you'd be like, whoa, okay, this could work. We should press this and do this ourselves. You know, when I first met Godwin, I did a record with Godwin and Karen Wheeler called special kind of love. And, and I said, who's going to put it out? God, and he goes, put it out. Gonna do it myself? You man, going to do it myself. Do it myself. <laughs> so I never, ever thought that, um, you know, London was the be all end all. I felt it was just a, a, another stepping stone. It reconnected me with Danny. It also gave me opportunities. Peter gave me a lot of great opportunities to remix records.
0: We should definitely get on to that because one of the um, industry staples for a long time was the blacksmith rub. Yeah. If you wanted to kind of make that dent and make that noise, you had to have a blacksmith rub. I mean, how many records did you remix? I mean, have you only got any
1: idea of the number? I have no clue, <laughs> but it all started with Pete going, Oi, we've got this group called Salt and Pepper. And I went, yeah. He goes, you guys up for doing a remix? I said, absolutely, love salt and pepper. And at that time, we were working also on the second Still Pulse album. And I had a conversation with David from Still Pulse. And David said to me, "So, Bingi I see you're putting out records now." I said, like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." He goes, yeah, but you putting your 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 are you putting your area on the map? I said, like, "What do you mean?" Goes, okay, I'll give you an example. You know, Handsworth Revolution? I was like, yeah. It was a song we used to hear all the time. I go everywhere around the world, and everybody now knows where Handsworth is. You've got to represent your area. And I thought, mm, that's interesting. We coined the phrase, the Brixton bass remix. And that's where that whole <laughs> thing started. Major props to Dave Durrell. Dave would be like, oi. You guys should do this mix. I can't do it, but you guys should do it. We ended up working with so many incredible people, you know, and that was a a stage in my life where I truly recognised how music can play a significant role within your life.
0: Tell us about some of those people. I mean, obviously you've mentioned mentioned Pete Tong, you've mentioned Dave Durrell. I mean, who were some of the other people in and around the business at that time that really provided you with support, words of advice, guidance, as you started on that major journey?
1: There were so many, including yourself, Adrian, of course. Guy Moot was one. He tried to give us a publishing deal way back when, 30-odd years ago. But we didn't really understand it, didn't really feel we needed it. There was a guy called Brian Carr, who was a big lawyer at that time, represented people like uh, Shah Day, and really gave me an insight into how publishing works. Steve Wolf, you know, <laughs> Tony Powell up at MCA at that time. Roger Ames, my God. Roger Ames was a powerhouse at that time. Um, even though we didn't get off on the right foot first time round, Julian Palmer was incredible. Great people. Timmy Regisford. At first, I couldn't even believe he was on my phone. If you don't know who Timmy Regisford is, Google him. He's an iconic individual in the house world. Merlin Bob. Bob. (laughs) Sylvia Rhone. Oh, of course, Lowell Silas, who you introduced me to, Adrian. Me and Lowell became fast friends. God bless him. I loved Lowell. Lowell's... Spirit is what lies within me to this day. And if you don't know who Lowell Silas is, Arx Jimmy Jam, Arx Terry Lewis, Arx L.A. Reed. Arx Babyface.
0: And Teddy Riley.
1: Arx Teddy Riley. All of these iconic artists. My lasting memory of Lowell is meeting him. We met and he said, well, I want you to remix this artist. I said, who's the artist? He said, she's called Pebbles. She was on MCA at that time. He goes, but I want to play you what I'm working on. Lowell begins to play me this record and it starts off. String intro and I'm like, cool, this is dope. And at the end of the record, he goes, right, Blacksmith, that's my first single. Right. It's by a group called the Mac band the songs called Roses Are Red. I was blown away by that record, the sounds on that record, how it hit. And so anyway, he played me Pebbles, Backyard, and I was like, yeah, I'm in this. He goes, hold on. <laughs> and he got on the phone and he called his assistant in L.A. And he said, yeah. Get me on the phone with L.A. I need to get the multi-tracks for this record. L.A. Reid picks up the phone. <laughs> Low goes, yo, L.A., I've got these guys here called Blacksmith. I want them to remix Backyard for uh, Pebbles. Can you send me the multis? And L.A. went, yeah, are they good? He goes, come on, man, can I be calling you if they weren't good? I digress, but I wanted to share those memories because <laughs> yeah. our paths would cross again and it would be one of the most successful times professionally of my life. But this just shows you how small the music business is. And then Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were enormously supportive. A friend Steve Wolf, a and calls up, got this record, Sounds of Blackness, knew who they were. They needed something out. Jimmy and Terry were working on the new album. Didn't have time to finish it. Could you do it? We said yes. I was broke. We were facing bankruptcy. Nothing in the bank. Nothing coming in. Wolfie calls. Says, Blacksmith, can you do it? We said yes. And talk about Epiphany. The song was called I'm Going All The Way and it was incredible. So finished the record, mix done. Sent it to A&M. Next day, get a call. They all love the mix, but we can't use it. We can't afford to pay you. I was scuppered. I thought, oh my God, you're kidding me. So next day, get a call back from Steve. Steve says, Tim, you won't believe this. I said, what? Jimmy and Terry have heard the mix, love the mix, want us to go with it. They're going to pay you themselves out of their own pocket. With that money, I was able to pay off the tax man. And that record was a huge hit.
0: Going back to talking about that moment where you're at your lowest step with facing bankruptcy, not quite knowing what was going on. One of the things that seemed to come from that was your real insatiable desire to know more about the business, know more for what was going on. You, as I saw at the time, dealing with you on a one-to-one, were very much modeling what was going on in America where LA was the man who went out and did the business. Jimmy was the man who did the business for Jam Lewis. Was that something that was deliberate from you, You know, looking at what what happened to you financially, that you wanted to have that control?
1: Yes, absolutely. And that came about because of... Uh, a management relationship that had gone wrong and that had left us in that position. And i swore to myself, I would never let myself get into that position again. And I was going to do it myself. Once a hustler, always a hustler, but I couldn't do everything. But I had people around me who were great. And they were great musicians. They were really good producers. And so what I started doing, I'd be like, well, I can't do this particular mix, but I've got someone who can. And I started to get them involved and get them doing things. And that gave me a whole nother side of the business. And so ultimately, you know, that was another departure, but I didn't set out to do it. It was just through the resources of, you know what, i really love to see these talented people get a look in.
0: So let's fast forward, it's getting close to the late 90s, the end of the 90s. We're about to enter a new millennium and I'm working at a different record company now and Tim Blacksmith knocks on my door and says, I've got these couple of great guys, I really think you should get them to do a mix for you. They're called Stargate. Tell us about that relationship and how that started, because that's been a pivotal moment in your life and informs the next step of your journey.
1: That started purely through music, through remixing. Uh, a young a and from Norway reached out to me by the name of Tor Erik Hermansen. And he said, I got this girl. Would you be interested in working on her? So we put a real R&B mix on the record. I called him up and I said, we finished the mix. He said, great, okay, I'm gonna come check it out. So he came all the way down to Brixton. He had a listen and he absolutely loved what he heard. And he said, listen, we're making an album. Would you be interested in being involved? I said, yeah, sure. But you've got to come to Norway. And I was cool with that. He said, yeah, but I've got one other request. I said, what's that? He goes, do I know Gina Thompson? I said, yes, I do. So long story short, we get Gina Thompson to the far north of Norway. We make a great record together. But... but, One thing I noticed when I got to Norway about Stargate was that they had invested in their studios. They had invested in themselves. They had one of the most up-to-date Pro Tools systems I had ever seen. And at that time, Pro Tools is costing you 30, 40, 50,000 pounds. And they had two systems. I knew straight away these guys were serious. So lo and behold, one of the writers, Mikael Eriksson, while I was in Norway, in the studio working on the album, said, Tim, I'd love to play you some music of what we're doing. And I thought, mm, okay, hip-hop R&B from Norway, okay, interesting. Okay, sat in a room and he played me the first song. And the song was called Always, Always On My Mind. And it was great. The melodies were great. It was it was on point. And I was like, Well, that's great. And he was like, Yeah, we wanted to know, would you guys be, would you be interested in managing? And I said, Yeah, I'm interested. We finished the record. I went back to England. And I called my dear friend Danny. And I said, Danny, you know we've been looking for something to work on. He went, Yeah. I said, I think I found it. So we ended up in the far north of Norway again. Danny saw what I saw and he said, in fact, there's a project that uh," his then manager, which was Simon Fuller, wanted him to do. He goes, I think the guy should do it. I'm going to tell Simon. And Danny came back and said, guys, it's a project we need you to do down in London. They were like, really? We were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to fly down and meet them. And the guys were like, fly down to, yeah, fly down to London. So Simon flew us all down to London, and we met in this little restaurant, and the group was called S Club 7. And after that, Stargate, Delirious Blacksmith was born. We never looked back after that record.
0: Your journey has been remarkable. And, you know, even from that point onwards, obviously it's S Club 7, Top Loader, Mystique. You know, once you kind of cleaned out and had massive success in the UK, Both of you took on something that was unprecedented at that time and very forward-thinking, and that was to to look across the water and think, you know what, the US is the
1: next step. What prompted that? It was a conversation, and the conversation was led by, if I hear another Stargate record, I'm not going to play. And that was said by a member of a very big radio station at the time in the UK, the only national radio station at that time, and it was BBC Radio One. When you hear a conversation like that going down, that's when you know you've reached your ceiling and that you need to make moves. I believed in Stargate so much at that period of time because they were great musicians. We've had success everywhere else except for America by then, Adrian. You know, I think we had done 80 to 90 million records or CDs or sales, whatever it was, around Europe at that time. And, you know, the door was fast closing. You know, that was one of the things about the UK. The UK never really loved success. They always had this thing where, you know, if you were really successful, you had to go away.
0: One of my greatest joys has been to see the success that you guys have had over the past 15 years and earlier because we've, always, we've all been so close. So what I'd like you to do, for those that don't know, there's going to be a lot of people who are listening to this who will know, but there's going to be some that don't know. Let's talk about those big records, Tim. We'll just list them. Let's talk about the awards that you've won with the Stargate guys because I think that it deserves to be celebrated and you know, it deserves to be told.
1: Let's start with the first one. Because, as they say, the first cut is the deepest, right? Amen um, to that. <laughs> so, So Sick of Love Songs by Neo was our first number one in America and was the very, very beginning of what would be an incredible run with young Neo um, and with Jay Brown, Jay Z, L.A. Reed. Uh, Danny and Tata, who without which most of this wouldn't wouldn't have happened. Then Irreplaceable by Beyonce. My goodness, that one again with Neo. I remember walking in and the song playing and hearing to the left, to the left. I remember hearing that part and me going, yo, Neo. That's a smash and Neo turning around and looking at me and go, yeah, but who's going to do it? This is a story I want to share with you. This is how beautiful the community of Island Death Jam used to be at that time. And why I loved working in America. There was one day I was having a sound clash and me and Tata are having a sound clash and I'm killing him. You know me, Adrian. <laughs> I, am, I know you know your music too. I am the Don Sleptar you know. and I'm killing Tata. And this is the very, very first time I get to meet Jay Z. <laughs> is Jay Z standing there. But <laughs> I'm thinking, and Tata goes, This guy thinks he's got better music than me. It's like, What? So Jay Z takes his jacket off and starts <laughs> telling Tata what to play. I remember it like it was like yesterday. I played Roberta Flack the first time ever I saw your face. And I've got my head down in my iPod like that. And then I look up and there's Beyonce sat there. I'm dumbfounded. And first words out of her mouth is like, oh my God, this is beautiful. Who is this? We end up in Jay's office. And she proceeds to play songs from B-Day. One of them, which is irreplaceable. And I just thought to myself, wow, look at this. This is incredible. This is great. She had recreated it. She didn't have the parts. I was like, so let us get you the file so you can finish the song. Diamonds by Rihanna. One of my favourite ones, because it was written with Sia, who, wow, who is to me one of the greatest writers. You know, she just has these lyrics that come from here, you know, comes from, really comes from the art. We, at that time, we had this thing called the Grammy sessions and we had people come through because everybody was in town. And so Neo came through and he did quite a few songs. There was one day I sat there and I watched him write a song called Murderer, which would later go on to be called Unfaithful. I watched him write that song within 40 minutes. And it was incredible. So anyway, when he wrote Spotlight, it felt good. It really did. Grammys 2008, an incredible time because we were nominated for Song of the Year uh, in the R&B category, R&B Song of the Year, twice, with Neo. One for Miss Independent and the other one for Spotlight. It was Miss Independent. But I loved Spotlight and I loved working with Jennifer because Jennifer at that time, was coming off of winning the Oscar. But, you know, she sang effortlessly and she was the consummate professional, you know. So uh, yeah, that was a great period. And after winning that award in 08, and then that was, the, that was on what they call the premiere or the pre-tell. And then when we came out, they were doing R&B album of the year. And we won that as well. And the late, great Whitney Houston gave her the award. I'll never forget that at the Grammys.
0: Looking back at BLM, Blackout Tuesday, how do you see the industry as it is now in regards to looking forward to try and change?
1: In particular, my biggest concerns were the lack of uh, investment into businesses, black-owned businesses, female and male. Uh, partnering with our young entrepreneurs. Um, seen a little bit of it, uh, t- but again, it's too early to call. And when you look at the business now, Tim, to
0: when you were starting out, what do you see as major dif- the major differences for people of colour? Not much. Sad to say. Expand on that.
1: Well, I mean, I haven't been in the UK for 16, 17 years. But one thing I will tell you is that what I've been able to achieve here in the United States, I would not have been able to achieve in the United Kingdom, which is a sad indictment. I just don't see the partnerships.
0: You've actually touched on one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Tim, which was, do you think that people have used your knowledge, Bank, as they should do, given the breadth of knowledge and contacts and information that you have?
1: Not really, but a a part of that has been down to me as well, and and I'm trying to change that. But one thing I will say is, is that when you do try to change it and you make overtures to people and then they shut you down, it just tells me nothing ain't changed. It's going to take more of our young people to become entrepreneurs and to do things themselves. And to learn it themselves, you know, and to have people like myself and Danny be willing to partner with them. Because unfortunately, Adrian, there are some incredible people, in my opinion, who should have partnerships, which are more than just funding, but are mentoring and say, you know, don't do it like that. Let's work through this one. okay? well, no, I love that, you know, but let's do it. You know, the same thing that I grew up with. So do you think
0: that that for you is going to be the role that you and Danny assume greater activity around, looking for those young, you know, exciting talents, bringing them in, sharing your knowledge base, not just, as you say, financially, but also providing that depth of knowledge and opening up your contact book and watching them flourish?
1: Yes, and hence
0: Stellar Songs. And let's talk about Stellar Songs because... It's the jewel in the crown. It's been something that you guys did against all the odds. It's the template for every other sub publisher. Everybody wants to be Stella Songs. You know that. I mean, because everybody that walks into a publishing company cites you guys as the model. It's been unbelievably successful and continues to do so. So, tell us about Stella. Tell us about those people that helped bring bring that to life.
1: Well, Stella Songs started in two thousand and four. And it was an idea that came to the forefront after a conversation with Tor from Stargate. It wasn't a a particularly significant star, but come 2006, a particular record by the name of Irreplaceable was coming out. That one song recouped everything and then solidified the relationship and we went on to greater things from there. We then went on to sign Emily Sanday, which was incredible. And then we went on to sign Sam Smith to this day. I still can't believe that I am the publisher of a James Bond theme. And
0: did the young Tim Blacksmith ever think that one day he'd be sitting in the Hollywood Hills being as successful as he has been and, you know, Having yeah, enjoying the fruits of working with some amazing people and with this amazing catalogue that you guys have, have, have accumulated and built on a lot of hard work over the years. And I think that's the one thing we should, we really have to emphasize. It doesn't come easy. There's an enormous amount of hard work, dedication, and sacrifice that you guys have, have, have put in to achieve what you've achieved.
1: I was quietly optimistic. And then uh, there was a particular book I was reading at the time and there was a chapter in the book and it dealt with visualising success. And coming from England, you were taught not to be cocky. You were taught not to be, you know, top of the top. But my dad, he had a whole nother... Remit, being Jamaican, he had a whole nother remit. You used to come home and tell your old man, yeah, we came second today. (sniffs) Second, what kind of business is that? Second, (laughs) is that all you could do? So no, deep down, deep down idea to dream. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have to dare to dream. Did I think it would be on this level? Oh, absolutely not.
0: And finally, I've got to ask you this. When you sit down with the young black executives, male and female, those or those young writers that come across you now, what do you tell them? What's your word of advice to them?
1: It's the same I give to everybody, which is believe in yourself, invest in self, don't be deterred, even when people are not feeling you. Always remember everything is possible, even when you're facing. The tax man. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is possible. And I liken it to one thing, our parents' journey in England in the 1950s and how they were treated as people. We have no reason whatsoever not to be successful.
0: Again, I'm immensely proud to call you a friend. I'm immensely proud to see how you guys have progressed over the years long may continue thank you for being so generous with your time for talking to us on Did You Know and remember everybody Tim Blacksmith is one of the true pioneers thank you Tim
1: no thank you Adrian and I appreciate you and everything you contributed to Blacksmith I'm not here without you
0: I'm Adrian Sykes thanks for listening to Did You Know a Downstreet production. Our thanks to Tim Blacksmith for sharing his stories and to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, our production team, Cass Denton and Lanique Swartz, to Ella Ruby on the socials and to Vega Brothers for our theme music. Honourable mentions to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Keep listening for further information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode, where I'll be talking to BBC Five Live presenter, Arthur Arthenaika, about his remarkable journey and career to date this was did you know until the next time